0: today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 6th, 2023. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here's our first story. How Erskine Elementary improved by two ratings. Teachers encourage students to set their own learning goal. This is by Grace King. Out of Cedar Rapids. Erskine Elementary school teacher Brooke Tauber celebrates with her students when they achieve something, big or small, with a 10-second dance party and a phone call home. It's individual students meeting those little goals each day that she attributes to Erskine Elementary improving by two levels on the Iowa school report card rating in the last year. The achievement is almost unheard of, Deputy Superintendent Nicole Koiker said in a school board meeting last month. Schools are scored based on state assessments, academic achievement, student growth, progress in achieving English language learning proficiency, conditions for learning survey, which gathers information about how students feel about the culture and climate of their school, graduation rate, and how prepared students are for life after high school. There are six categories in Iowa performance ratings. Highest to lowest, the categories are exceptional, high-performing, commendable, acceptable, needs improvement, and priority. Erskine Elementary went from needs improvement to commendable. Educators look at student data every six weeks to identify where students might need extra learning, to be retaught a skill, or spend time one-on-one with a teacher. Even a five-minute phonics routine can help them succeed, Tauber said. This mindset inspires students to set goals for themselves as well. Tauber was assessing how many words per minute third graders could read when a student, who was reading at ninety seven words a minute, set a goal to be over one hundred words a minute within the next two weeks. I told him I was going to hold him to it, Tauber said. Tauber worked with him on phonics, sight words, and comprehension, and by the end of those two weeks he was reading at one hundred and five words per minute, she said proudly. Stacey Lynn, Erskine Elementary 4th and 5th grade English language arts teacher, said she loves those aha moments. I love when something clicks and they know it's clicking, she said. Educators at Erskine work in grade-level groups called professional learning communities, for example, all the 3rd grade teachers, to get advice from each other and improve learning outcomes. Every kid at Erskine believes they can be a learner, Erskine Elementary instructional coach Stephanie Stolkin said. Teachers assure students it's okay if they learn differently because everyone's brain is different, Stolkin said. Sometimes students are shuffled into different classrooms to be matched with a teacher better suited to meet their unique learning needs, she said. The focus is always, what does each child need to be successful? Erskine Elementary principal Annette Zimmerman said this is a huge part of improving student academic achievement and gives teachers a sounding board when they're struggling to help a student make progress. I see the hard work the teachers put in every day. They're so responsive to student needs and data. To see us grow was not surprising. To make that jump was a huge celebration, Zimmerman said. Staff at Erskine also spend a lot of time building a sense of belonging for students, which gives students a feeling of security and community that helps support academic and social development. Christy Bryant, Erskine Elementary kindergarten teacher, said that while the school is celebrating the success of the past year, the work is never done. It's just as important to celebrate what students are good at as it is to help students improve in the areas of learning where they struggle. It can help them develop a lifelong love of learning, she said. Sometimes all it takes to make a new learning concept stick is finding a different way to teach it by incorporating movement, singing, or painting, Brian said. There's no one way to learn, she said. Each year, I get a new set of students, and it starts all over, Bryant said. August is going to come with big, bright eyes and big smiles who have had varying experiences. Our next article is Calling While Driving May Face New Rules. Most States Already Require Hands-Free Mode by Aaron Murphy out of Des Moines. Using mobile devices while driving a vehicle would be illegal, except when using hands-free modes, under a proposal being considered by Iowa state lawmakers. The concept is nothing new. Similar legislation has floated around the Capitol ever since the state, in 2017, enacted a ban on texting while driving. But some lawmakers think momentum is building around the proposal, and with a large number of new legislators, this may be the year the ban on mobile device operation passes both chambers of the Iowa legislature and makes it to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk for her consideration. It's time to get it done, Iowa Senator Zach Walls, a Democrat from Coralville and leader of the Iowa Senate Democrats, said Friday while recording Iowa Press on Iowa PBS. I sure hope so. It's something that certainly it's long overdue. From 2015 to 2021 in Iowa, the average number of an, average annual number of crashes that involved distracted driving increased 64.9% over the previous 14 years, according to state transportation data. Over the same period, the number of distracted driving related crashes involving fatalities and total deaths from crashes both spiked by 237% in Iowa. In 2022, a total of 338 people died on Iowa roads, according to the Iowa Department of Transportation. Already this year, 25 have been killed. State law enforcement officials say the current ban on texting while driving is nearly impossible to enforce because it is difficult to prove a driver was texting, which is illegal, and not making a call, which remains legal. Proposed legislation that is advancing in the Iowa Senate would allow for mobile device use while driving only in hands-free mode. Any handheld use of a device while driving would be prohibited. The bill, Senate File 60, is supported by five organizations that represent state law enforcement officials, plus the state public safety and transportation departments, according to state lobbying records. The proposal also is backed by groups representing insurance companies, car dealers, lawyers, senior citizens, brain injury prevention advocates, and local governments. No groups are registered in opposition to the proposal. Senator Mark Lofgren, a Republican from Muscatine, who has been managing the proposed legislation in the Senate, said that as an avid runner, he has witnessed an increase in drivers who operate mobile devices while driving. It seems like 20 years ago, as a runner, you didn't see many drivers distracted, Lofgren said. It seems like it's gotten worse, and it's gotten worse, and it's gotten worse. Lofgren said he also hopes the proposal passes the Iowa legislature this year. Thirty states prohibit the handheld use of mobile devices while driving, according to the National Governor's Highway Safety Association. Representative Pat Grassley, the Republican Speaker of the House from New Hartford, said he's not sure how many House Republicans support the proposal, given 24 of them are in their first year in the legislature. Senator Jack Whitfer, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, said something similar. There are nine new Senate Republicans this year. He said now that the bill managed by Lofgren has passed out of the Senate's Transportation Committee, the full roster of Senate Republicans will start discussing it. Our next headline is C60, In Court to Face Lawsuit Over Cleanup by Aaron Jordan. State and local regulators will be joined by C60 representatives for a hearing today in Iowa County over whether a judge should force the company to comply with an emergency order to clean up the site of a December 8th explosion and fire. The Iowa Attorney General's Office wants an Iowa County District Court to grant a temporary injunction requiring C60 and owner Howard Brand III to clean up soil and water contaminated by oil and other chemicals. Give the Iowa Department of Natural Resources a list of all chemicals used or stored at the Moringo plant, or C-60, had been attempting to dissolve shingles, allow Iowa DNR officials access to the property. That first demand, and specifically a 45-day deadline for cleaning up the site, likely will be disputed during the hearing scheduled for an hour today, said Jerry Anderson, dean of the Drake University Law School and an expert in environmental and property law. Is the DNR asking them to do too much too soon, Anderson said? That will be the main point of contention. The Attorney General's office filed a lawsuit January 11th against C-60 and Brand after the Iowa DNR said the company was late filing a plan for how to clean up the site. And the planned timeline also didn't meet the 45-day deadline set out in December 15th emergency order. While most of the polluted water is corralled in a retention basin for now during the winter, Marengo this spring will need to release water into the Iowa River, which supplies drinking water to downstream communities, including Iowa City. If a judge approves the injunction, the court could force Brand, or C-60, to adhere to the emergency order or face fines or criminal charges, Anderson said. An injunction would allow the Iowa DNR to involve law enforcement to gain access to the Marengo site. The court can send out the sheriff to make sure DNR agents can do the inspections they need to do, Anderson said. C-60 employees denied entrance to the facility to the Iowa DNR twice in the months before the fire and also would not let an employee visit January 24th, agency spokeswoman Tammy Kraussman confirmed. C-60 may argue the 45-day deadline isn't reasonable, Anderson said. Both sides potentially could call witnesses to testify about how long it could take to collect polluted water and soil and dispose of the waste safely. Brand has hired Michael Cooner of Zenner Cooner PLC of Des Moines to represent him in the lawsuit. Court filings show it's unclear whether Cooner also represents the C60 company. David Stewart, an assistant Iowa Attorney General, wrote to another Des Moines lawyer, Steve Wandro, on January 24th, asking if Wandro was representing C60. Stewart said the company's in-house legal counsel, Tim Dore, named Wandro as its. as its representative. Stewart indicated willingness to compromise with C60. Please know I will always make myself available to discuss this matter with you and work with you to reach an amicable resolution that protects public health and the environment, Stewart wrote. I am communicating regularly with the DNR concerning the situation in Marengo, and I can serve as another avenue of communication between the parties as we all hopefully work together toward a common goal. C-60 did not respond to a demand letter Iowa County Emergency Management Agency Director Josh Humphrey sent January 17th asking for Brand or the company to pay local first responder agencies $640,121 for equipment damaged when agencies fought the blaze December 8th, Humphrey said. Due to the nature of the chemicals involved, a variety of emergency response equipment and personal protective equipment has been deemed unfit to use. Humphrey wrote January 17th. All such equipment must now be replaced. Humphrey asked Brand to pay the bill by February 1st, but that didn't happen. The demand letter warned civil action could follow, and Iowa County is considering whether to proceed with a lawsuit or other action, Humphrey said. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is reviewing C-60's response to a December 20 request for information about the company, its processes, chemicals used, inspection reports, and training documents. The company is claiming some of the information in the response contains confidential business information, EPA Region 7 spokesman Kellen Ashford said in an email last week. Our next story is entitled, Could Tiger King Happen in Iowa? Not now. New federal law goes beyond 2007 Iowa law on big cats. By Bailey Cicone. In October 2007, Chickasaw County Sheriff's deputies were called to the New Hampton home of Joseph and Don Schmidt after a pet tiger escaped its cage. When they arrived, the one year old tiger was attacking the family's border collie. Earlier that year, the Iowa legislature passed a law limiting the private ownership of dangerous wild animals. Current owners, like the Schmidts, were allowed to keep their animals but needed to register with the state and maintain liability insurance. At the time of the incident, the Schmitz also owned cougars and a bear. The New Hampton incident ended without human injury. A Chickasaw County Sheriff's deputy shot the pet tiger from his car. The mauled dog survived. Despite state legislation, this was not the last time Iowans experienced a tiger attack. The New Hampton episode is one of 432 big cat incidents in the nation since 1980, according to data from the Humane Society of the United States. At least 22 of those incidents resulted in the death of a human. The most recent, December 30, 2018, in Burlington, North Carolina. Since 2020, there have been 18 big cat incidents in the nation, with eight of those involving injury to a human. In December, President Joe Biden signed a law that would change the future of big cat ownership and exhibition. The Big Cat Public Safety Act limits private ownership and breeding of lions, tigers, leopards, jaguars, cougars, and any hybrid of these species. Current owners are required to register their animals with the U.S. US Fish and Wildlife Service within 180 days of December 20, 2022, in June. Registration would tell law enforcement officers and first responders if they are entering the home of a big cat. The law also restricts animal exhibitions. If the cat is not behind a permanent barrier, like an enclosure, the public must be at least 15 feet away. Those who violate the act are subject to a fine of up to $20,000 and up to five years in prison. The new federal law expands on Iowa's 2007 law by limiting breeding to accredited facilities and outlawing public contact with big cats through cub petting operations. Though animal welfare activists are celebrating passage of the act, animal exhibitors are concerned about limiting breeding of endangered species and potential future laws about wild animal ownership and exhibition. Lynn County Sheriff's Sergeant Sean Ireland said Iowa law enforcement relies on welfare training from the Iowa Rescue League and the Humane Society of the United States. The trainings focus on common animal cases like neglect, abuse, and hoarding. Ireland said he could see these cases occurring with exotic animals. I would be concerned with people taking in animals that, as they grow up or get bigger, are not able to manage them as they were when they were smaller animals, he said. Ireland said Lyd County, though, has not had incidents with big cats. Cricket Hollow Zoo owner mauled in 2011. Until a 2018 animal neglect lawsuit shuttered Cricket Hollow Zoo, Iowans could visit exotic animals in Manchester. The small roadside zoo was home to hundreds of animals, including a tiger, which mauled Cricket Hollow Zoo owner Tom Sellner in 2011. Pam Sellner, his wife and business partner, told the Gazette about the incident. She prefaced the story by saying, it's just one of those things that happens when you work with anything. Tom had been feeding the cats and was going to clean their enclosure. When he put the door back so the cats could enter the cage, He had his back turned and he was opening a different door so that he could go in and clean the enclosure, she said. Tom had failed to shut an outside door and a tiger came around and attacked him while his back was turned. The number one thing that you have to remember when you're working with big cats is never ever turn your back on any size of cat because they will jump on you, she said. Cricket Hollow Zoo has since been shuttered for animal neglect offenses. In 2019, animal welfare advocates rescued more than 400 animals from the roadside zoo, although many were missing. Raising bobcats at home It is not heard of for big cats to live in the homes of Iowans. Long before Iowa's 2007 law, the Sellners raised bobcats in their home alongside domestic cats. Pam Selner said the felines didn't know the difference. They slept on the bed, they watched TV, we didn't have a Christmas tree because the bobcat would probably shred it, she said. We have pictures of my son when he was little, sitting in front of a bear tree with his presence because we had a bobcat. Cub petting in the spotlight. The act will eradicate the cub petting industry, which supporters of the law consider to be predatory and harmful to the public and big cats. Throughout the years, cub petting has been used to describe animal exhibitors that allow the public to interact with big cat cubs through photo opportunities and pay-to-play experiences. The cub petting industry was put into the national spotlight by the Netflix documentary series Tiger King. The series highlighted the feud between pseudo-sanctuaries, safari experiences, and roadside zoos and animal welfare activists. Overnight, cub petting operators Joe Exotic and Doc Antle and Big Cat Sanctuary owner Carol Baskin became household names. Cub petting industry's most famous rival... Baskin is the founder of Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida, though she never planned to own a rescue. Baskin said her goal is to fix the big cat issue, even if it means hosting cats for the rest of their lives. It is home to 42 cats, including tigers and servals. Big cats cannot be domesticated, and those bred in captivity cannot be released to the wild. When cubs outgrow their homes, private owners surrender their pets to sanctuaries like Baskin's, and it's not cheap to own a big cat. Baskin told the Gazette annual vet care, food. Baskin told the Gazette, animal vet care and food costs can be seven thousand five hundred dollars to ten thousand dollars per cat, depending on its size. The dark side of the cub petting industry. Legally, cubs can only be used for human interactions, including petting, until they are about twelve weeks old. Baskin said older cubs can take the finger off a child. Because of this, cubs are continuously bred to keep up with demand. Activists like Baskin are concerned that cubs are killed when they grow too old to use for photo opportunities. Cricket Hollow Zoo offered cub time a few times during its operation. Selner said the public and cats enjoyed the very positive educational experience. We knew eventually that opportunity would probably disappear, and now it has, Selner said. There's people who actually cried. They were so happy to be part of that for the brief time they did. Sellner doesn't believe cub petting is inhuman. Rather, she sees removing cub petting as a financial danger to roadside zoos. Roadside zoos are typically not accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Associ- excuse me, association zoos support conservation efforts and receive an elevated status in laws like the Big Cat Safety Act. Cub time provides that income so that cats can have an enclosure that's going to be good for him for the next 18 years, Sellner said. And it's sad that things have to be taken away from people, and they'll never get the chance to be up close and personal with a cub. Additionally, Sellner is concerned that the federal regulation of big cat owners also will make it easier to regulate owners of small cats like servals, bobcats, and lynxes. It's not going to be very hard to take that right away from people, she said. What do animal exhibitors say? Floridian Heidi Harriet is a third generation animal trainer and the host of Animal Tales podcast. She said her family's work gets lumped into circus, seen by animal activists as negative. Legally, an exhibited animal includes those at circuses, zoos, fairs, and other special events. Harriet feels that animal trainers are vilified and therefore denied a voice in discussions on animal welfare. Imagine if we didn't vilify circus animal trainers who have cats and elephants and we didn't put our happy face all over these sanctuaries where they show these utopian conditions, she said. Let's have real conversations about what's really right for the animals and bring in true science, data, expertise, and generational expertise. When you put those together, that's the program. That's the way we move forward. Harriet believes human intervention is the key to avoiding extinctions, According to the World Wildlife Organization, the following big cat species are endangered. Amur leopard, Sunda tiger, and tiger. The Act limits breeding to only associations of zoos and aquariums facilities. Harriet believes sanctuaries should breed endangered species and worries the Act's limitations will accelerate extinction. We need to do right by the individual animals, but we also have to have a mindset of what is going to allow us to perpetuate the species, Harriet said, and the two can be in sync. What's next? For Baskin, the future of Big Cat exhibition lies in virtual reality instead of zoos and safaris. Baskin said she was surprised that people's attitudes towards zoos have become more negative over the past 30 years. She sees virtual reality zoos as providing meaningful educational opportunities without taking animals out of their habitats. I think that's the future, and I think we're going to have to drag zoos kicking and screaming into that future, but I think it's what the public wants, she said. Okay, in the Iowa Today section, we have the headline, Iowa DNR Seeks Monitors for Bald Eagle Nests. Volunteers are especially needed in Lynn and Johnson, among other counties. This is by Brittany Miller. Iowa has more than 500 known active bald eagle nests across the state, plus more with unknown statuses. And the Iowa Department of Natural Resources is seeking help with keeping tabs on them all. Community science volunteers have helped monitor the state's eagle population since 2006. Last year, monitors collected data on roughly 290 of Iowa's bald eagle nests. With more than 1,000 wildlife species in the state, we just don't have enough staff in the DNR to adequately monitor all the vulnerable species that need attention, said Stephanie Shepard, the Iowa DNR's Volunteer Wildlife Monitoring Program coordinator, in an announcement. This is where community scientists play a crucial role. Monitors are especially needed in the following counties, although volunteers from across the state are welcome. Alameda, Appanoose, Chickasaw, Clayton, Delaware, Howard, Lynn, Lucas, Johnson, Jones, Marion, Monroe, Wayne, and Winneshiek. Monitors would need binoculars and preferably a spotting scope, which is a type of small telescope. The gig requires around six hours of work between March and July each year to visit the nests, conduct the surveys, and submit the data. The department will host a live online training workshop for volunteers interested in monitoring bald eagle nests across the state. It will be held via Zoom from 1 to 4 p.m. February 19th. Participants will learn about the program and how to get involved. Those interested can register through the Iowa DNR's Volunteer Wildlife Monitoring Program website. The workshop will be limited to 25 households and requires a $5 tuition plus fees. Registration will close February 15th at 5 p.m. or whenever the 25 household threshold has been reached. Our next headline is SEATS Program adds same-day service in Johnson County. Also, IC Board approves land purchase agreement that will expand footprint of city high school. Johnson County residents facing transportation barriers can now schedule same-day service through Johnson County SEATS. The county is investing pandemic relief dollars to offer on-demand rides for residents. The Board of Supervisors originally allocated $700,000 in American Rescue Plan Act funds toward the expansion. Eligible residents can schedule ride service from 7.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. The vehicle used for riders is accessible. The seats vans transport people to doctor's appointments, grocery stores, and other destinations, according to the county. Eligible residents include people who live outside of or are traveling to areas not served by public transit systems, who are awaiting approval for paratransit service, residents of North Liberty and unincorporated Johnson County without access to transportation, people with limited English proficiency, and individuals with barriers to accessing transportation. Riders need to get a one-time referral through a local human services agency or the county's mobility coordinator before accessing the service. Rides cost $5 each way. Residents should pay in cash or with an agency-issued ticket. Information on service referrals and more can be found on the county's website at johnsoncountyiowa.gov backslash same day. Residents can call 319 319-339-6125 Three three nine six one two five 339 6125 to schedule a ride and 319-339-6127 for ride information. Agencies can buy tickets by calling seats at 319-339-6128. Lynn makes way for trail near Dow's Farm. The Lynn County Board of Supervisors last week advanced on second consideration the rezoning of several acres of land earmarked for the Dow's Farm Project to promote trail development. The move is part of the county's negotiations with a landowner to the north of the development to do a voluntary land swap with the landowner. That grants Lynn County a trail easement to make way for a connection to an existing trail. This will take 7.58 acres out of the existing Dow's Farm Agri-Community project that will add housing and a working farm, only slightly shrinking the overall acreage to about 171 acres. The development plans include 251 housing units, walking trails, and land conservation elements for an estimated value exceeding 80 million dollars. Supervisor Louis Zumbach said to build the trail, there were several spots where the trail would have to have to, would have had to cross a creek, which would have necessitated the construction of bridges, which would cost extra money. It's quite a savings of money for putting in the trail because we won't have to cross the creek four to five times, Zumbach said. Charlie Nichols, Lynn County Planning and Development Director, said Lynn County Conservation determined there would have been annual flooding and it would have been cost prohibitive to maintain that trail with flooding every year. The neighbors requested land in exchange for granting the easement. Developer 2040 Concepts, led by Chad Pelly, is seeking community development block grant disaster recovery funds being awarded from the federal government to aid in recovery from the 2020 derecho. Link County is receiving most of the funds which are being awarded through the Iowa Economic Development Authority, likely this month. The developer paused the project last year while awaiting those decisions, but Nichols says the first phase of the project will likely be underway this spring and summer. Iowa City District Buys Land The Iowa City School Board approved a land purchase agreement on January 31st that will expand the footprint of Iowa City High School. The property at 1828 Morningside Drive was purchased by the district for $120,000 with secure and advanced vision for education funds. The Capital Projects Fund is intended for the purchase and improvement of grounds, purchase, construction, and remodeling of buildings, major equipment purchases, including technology, and community education programs. The expenditures from SAVE are approved by voters in the Revenue Purpose Statement. It is funded by statewide sales tax allocated by the state of Iowa to school districts based upon certified enrollment. I'm going to read one opinion column here before we move on. This is by Norman Sherman. Hunger is a low calorie diet. When Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley goes to church, he apparently hears the biblical injunction to balance the budget. Caring for the least of us or feeding the hungry is pagan, I guess, and certainly not a Republican priority in the legislature today. I want to help broaden their vision to include a tiny bit of fact and hopefully understanding of others' less affluent lives. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, began in 1933 as part of the New Deal's Agricultural Administration Act. It helped farmers survive low prices as it helped feed the unemployed and underemployed. SNAP saved the economy in rural Iowa and fed the otherwise hungry in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids as well. Many recipients today are children, the elderly, and the disabled. There is a work requirement there today as well. Now the legislature wants to limit what SNAP can buy. The original bill had bizarre limitations. No fresh meat, but canned tuna as a substitute. Brown rice was okay, but white rice was not. Flat slices of cheddar cheese were verboten. White bread was also forbidden. Whole wheat was not. The GOP says the menu has changed. Meat purchases will be permitted, lawmakers said. Grassley said about SNAP, it's these entitlement programs. They're the ones that are growing within the budget and are putting pressure on us, being able to fund other priorities. What exactly has more priority than eating? What they don't see clearly, if at all, are the hungry who live in every county in the state. They talk of food stamps with disdain as sinful entitlements for which we are spending too much money. The federal government, not Iowa, pays for 100% of SNAP's food assistance. We split administrative costs 50-50. If Iowa can't pay that, it cannot afford another mile of farm-to-market roads or 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 tuition to the wealthy for their private schools. No county in Iowa is without men, women, and children on food stamps. In Linn County, there are about 25,000 people who depend on SNAP for enough food. They spend over $3 million a year buying groceries here, eating what our farmers grow, and keeping people working in grocery stores, warehouses, and trucks hauling it all. Statewide, we have about 300,000 people covered each year. If hypocrisy had calories, each conservative member of our legislature would weigh about 367 pounds, What is especially fascinating to me is that the people who will tell you what you can and cannot eat and what you live on also believe regulating guns that kill is invasive control. People die and they do nothing. People live, but only with guidance from the all-knowing Betty Crockers in the legislature. I think they need all the help they can get. I wish I could reassure—I'm sorry, I wish I could resurrect Marie Antoinette— I would hope the Republicans would invite the beheaded queen into their caucus. When she said, let them eat cake, they would respond, not on food stamps. Hunger should not be treated as a budget, bookkeeping problem. If Grassley doesn't understand that, he ought to resign. That was by Norman Sherman of Coralville, who has worked extensively in politics, including as Vice President Hubert Humphrey's press secretary, and wrote a memoir, From Nowhere to Somewhere. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Radio Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Mary Margaret Ernst, 78 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 3rd, at her home surrounded by her loving family. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 7th at the Cedar Memorial Chapel State Room. A memorial mass will be held at 10 a.m. Wednesday, February 8th at St. Patrick Catholic Church with the Reverend Dennis Miller officiating. Friends may visit with the family after 9:30 a.m. Wednesday at the church. Inurnment will follow at St. John's Cemetery. Mary was born April 2, 1944, in Esterville, the daughter of James and Armella Sturm O'Brien. After high school, she attended Mount Mercy University. She earned her Bachelor of Arts in Education and began her teaching career. Mary was united in marriage to Gary Ernst on June 11, 1966, in Esterville. Mary had a passion for helping others. Throughout her education career, she taught high school and junior college. She enjoyed boating, attending her son's sporting events as their biggest fan, traveling and cooking. Mary was well known for her award-winning Blue Ribbon Chicken. She was a den mother for the Cub Scouts, homeroom mother throughout her son's elementary school years, as well as PTA president. Mary was a member of St. Patrick Catholic Church, Elmcrest Country Club, and Glen Oates Country Club. Survivors include her husband of 56 years, Gary, two sons, David of Cedar Rapids and Matthew of Morrisville, North Carolina, granddaughter Zayla, sister Patricia Wilson of Scottsdale, Arizona, her special dog Murphy, and extended loving family members and friends. She was preceded in death by her parents and a sister, Sheila Sundell. The three things that were most important to Mary were her family, her faith, and living life to its fullest, Her dedication to those who cared for will leave an everlasting remembrance of love and warmth. Mary battled her illness with bravery, courage, and strength. Her drive to live was an inspiration for all who knew her. She will be remembered for being a loving wife, mother, sister, nana, aunt, and friend with a huge heart. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Hospice of Mercy and the Family Caregiver Center of Mercy. Please leave a message, tribute, or memory to Mary's family at cedarmemorial.com. Our next is Mavis Hovden, who passed away peacefully on February 2nd at the age of 86. She was born to Blanche and Oliver Thompson in Decorah. Mavis graduated from Kalmar High School in 1954. She married Dale Hovden in 1959. They made their home in Cedar Rapids where they raised their family. While Mavis held many titles throughout her life, she was most proud of the ones that reflected her love of her family. Mavis was an exceptional mother, wife, sister, aunt, and grandmother to those lucky enough to call her theirs. She was cherished by both the community and her friends and known for her excellent hosting, cooking, and gardening skills, quick wit, and warm, welcoming smile. Mavis is survived by her loving husband of 63 years, Dale Hovden, her sister, Janelle Balick, Her children, Lisa Klein, spouse John, and David Hovden, spouse April. Her grandchildren, Devin, Ellie, Anna, Anthony, and Will, and great-granddaughter, Eliana. A visitation will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, February 10th, at Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids, followed by a funeral service at 11 a.m. Nancy Grace Jones, Witters, 67, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully with her children by her side on san- Saturday, January twenty-eighth, at Old Dorth Hospice. She was preceded in death by her parents, Robert and Mildred Witters, her brother, David Witters, and her sister, Jeanie Stichty Witters. Nancy is survived by her children, Christopher Potter and Casey Mulligan Potter, her grandchildren, Caden and Kyrie Potter, Nicholas Potter, Kalia Vestal and Max Mulligan, her siblings Carol and Marty Witters, and five nieces and nephews. Nancy could brighten anyone's day with her clever wit and sense of humor. She held her friends and neighbors at Commonwealth Apartments in high regard. She had a passion for plants and her kitties and the natural world. She enjoyed reading, cross stitching, painting blown out eggs, and had many other hobbies. She loved her family and friends deeply and will be greatly missed. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to Cedar Valley Humane Society. Online condolences can be left at CelebrateLifeIowa.com. Floraine Rennie Lloyd, Iowa City, 88, died Sunday, February 5th, at the Hills Atrium Village. Services are pending at this time through Gay and Siha Funeral and Cremation Service. Matthew J. Cashmitter, West Des Moines, passed away peacefully Excuse me. Was eighty-one. He passed away peacefully following a short illness on February second. He was born May eighth, nineteen forty-one, to Henry and Catherine Kolash, Cashmutter in Sheldon, Iowa. He graduated from Sheldon High School in nineteen fifty-nine and received his B.S. and M.S. degrees from the University of Iowa. Matt devoted his life to family, friends, and education. He loved to play pickleball, hike, and bike rides. He was a devoted teacher for thirty-five plus years. Services will be held at Lutheran Church of Hope, 925 Jordan Creek Parkway in West Des Moines, Iowa, on Thursday, February 9th at 11 a.m., with visitation one hour prior. The obituary is at hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Paula Joyce Pesenka, SIT-96, of Belle Plaine, passed away February 3rd at her home. She was born August 7, 1926, to Lester Babe and Gladys Freeman Anderson. She graduated from Bell Plaine High School, class of 1944. Following school, Paula worked at a Bell Plain grocery store. On November 30, 1947, Paula married Franklin Martin Pisenka. Together, they farmed and raised livestock north of Bell Plaine for 56 years until retirement. She was an excellent cook and made sure no one working the farm went hungry. As her children grew, grew, Paula also worked in the cafeteria at the Livestock Sale Barn and a microwave shop in Belle Plain. Paula liked reading, sewing, making clothes for her children, and quilting. She was a member of the Methodist Church Quilting Club, donating quilts to many different organizations. Paula also enjoyed her time outdoors, tending the yard and flowers. Paula was a nurturer with a love for people and animals. She lit up a room with her smile. She was the glue that held the family together, and will be greatly missed. Paula is survived by her daughter Paula, Paul, I'm sorry, by her daughter Laura Pachenka of Belle Plaine, son Jim, spouse Kim Pachenka of Blairstown, niece Marlene Botima of Arizona, grandchildren Clint, spouse Jenny Pachenka of Seattle, Washington, Amanda, spouse Jeff, Cheetah of Culver City, California. Jacob spouse Natalie Feuerbach of Solon, Jason spouse Kim Feuerbach of Riverside, Jennifer spouse Chris Meyer of Blairstown, Jessica Feuerbach of Blairstown, Allison spouse Aaron Armstrong of Shelsburg; and Alexander spouse Chetaney Wallace of Davenport, and many great-grandchildren, cousins, and friends. Paula was preceded in death by her parents, Husband Franklin in 2008, and infant daughter Lois Ann. Visitation is 10 to 11, Saturday, February 11th, at Christ United Methodist Church in Bell Plaine. Celebration of life at 11 a.m., February 11th, in the Church Fellowship Hall with lunch to follow. Burial will take place at Oak Hill Cemetery in Bell Plaine at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Essence of Life Hospice or a local charity of your choice. Online condolence can be sent to the family at newhofffuneralservice.com. Sandra Tootie Emmert of Marion was dealt her final hand on Friday, February 3rd at the age of 84. Visitation will be held from 3 to 5 p.m. Tuesday, February 7th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, private Nurman at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Sander was born January 7, 1939, in Fenton, Iowa. She was the third of seven children and born to Florence, Gremmels, Bamsey, and Arthur Bamsey. However, Sander would tell you she was raised in Grettinger, Iowa. She graduated high school in Lamont. In 1956, she married Thomas Ray Emmert. Tommy passed away in 1988. They never agreed on who pursued who and each enjoyed telling their version. They had three children, Deborah, spouse Dennis McMillan, Danny, spouse Kathy Emmert, and Dawn, spouse John Hall. Danny preceded her, passing in 2007. Five surviving grandchildren, Brian Armstrong, Brett Armstrong, Melanie King, Amanda Ritchie, and Jeremy Emmert. Several great-grandchildren, three siblings, Larry, spouse Sue Bamsey of Dallas, Texas, Linda Daly, and Paula, spouse dave wilson both of cedar rapids sandra's favorite job was a norand and would have worked into her 80s if the job had not relocated she enjoyed playing cards with her sisters linda daly and paula wilson her sister-in-law dolores and playing gin with bill sandra had taken memorable trips to california texas new mexico missouri washington dc and ireland opting not to kiss the blarney stone Always accommodating, Sandra might have served you breakfast, rotwurst, pizza, ice cream, a cocktail, or a hand of cards. Now she is basking in the warmth of God's heaven, no longer needing her electric blanket she used year-round. There was a bazillion white crossover cars in the world, but Sandra made hers unique from the rest because her license plates read Tutti. Sandra was blessed with a terrific memory and a gift of conversation. Therefore, she was a joy to be with as she shared memories and stories past and present. Sandra was firm in her political position, a position that those who knew her avoided in conversation. Those of us left to remember and honor her know how proud she was of her daughters and their husbands. She never missed a chance to brag on them. So, Sandra, go in peace, knowing your sisters, Linda Daly and Paula Wilson, will continue to drive all over Iowa in search of the best gizzard baskets, and there will be a slight increase of 7-Up and black velvet inventory without you. And even if they didn't get to know you, the patrons of Big Shots and VFWs from Marion to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, will feel an emptiness without your presence. God bless you for being you, Tootie. You are and will continue to be in our hearts and memories. In lieu of flowers, she requested you share a drink and story with a friend or family member and call your mother. Please leave a message, tribute, or memory to Sandra's family at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Lori S. Brooks. 72 of Coraville died Tuesday, January 24th at the Naples Community Hospital in Naples, Florida. Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 11th at Gay and SIHA funeral and cremation service, where visitation will take place on Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. To share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gay and SIHA funeral and cremation website at gayandchia.com. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established in Lori's memory. Lori Storm Brooks was born October 18, 1949, in Iowa City, to Harold and Jean Shaney Storm. Lori attended Lone Tree Community School. Following graduation in 1967, she attended beauty school and was a licensed cosmetologist, owning her own salon, Guys and Dolls, in New London. Later in life, she took a career change and became a paramedic working for the Johnson County Ambulance Service, beginning in 1987. Through this career, she met the love of her life, Harry Brooks. They married on October 11, 2003. She retired November 11, 2011. She was a dedicated EMS instructor and continued teaching CPR and first aid after her retirement. Lori was a gifted musician, and music was a big part of her life, including teaching piano lessons as a teenager. Lori's generous spirit led her to share her life not only with her daughters, but also with their friends and others that needed a strong female advocate. There was always a place at her table for anyone. She was a lover of all animals, but especially her dogs, Kiki and Katti, and her special friend, Martini. Lori was a lifelong Hawkeyes fan and enjoyed gathering with friends to watch the games. She traveled to Germany several times and enjoyed visiting her friend, Katja, and her family. She was excited to research her heritage while there. For several years, Lori and Harry spent their winters in Florida and made many friends. She loved entertaining, but in her later years, just visiting with her friends was a treat. As she became ill, her friends would come and often brought food to the home. These were such meaningful friendships when she was unable to be as active as she would have liked. Lori is survived by her husband, Harry Brooks. Her daughters, Nikki Butler, spouse John. Jessica Mead, spouse Brandon, Tanya Smith, spouse Jerry, and Amber Matthias, spouse Josh. She leaves behind grandchildren Teagan, Jack, and Griffin Butler, Cash and Shane Jensen, Michaela Gavin, spouse Sammy, Tavian, spouse Gianna, and Talia, spouse Brady, Smith. She had great-grandchildren Cassius, Ava, Kaya, and Tavian, Jr., she is also survived by her sister Lana, spouse Dale Schaefer, and their children Dan, spouse Candy Schaefer, Mindy, spouse Kenny Rodriguez, and Matt, spouse Jen Schaefer, and many great nieces and great nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents and mother in law, Rita Brooks. Carol A. Walsh, 83, of Fillmore passed away from multiple myeloma at home in Coralville with her family by her side on Tuesday, January 31st. Visitation will be from 3 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 6th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, Dubuque, where awake service will be at 2.45 p.m. Funeral Mass will be at 1.30 p.m. Tuesday, February 7th at Sacred Heart Fillmore with Father Mark Osterhaus officiating. Burial will be in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Dubuque. A live stream of the funeral mass will be on the funeral home Facebook page. For further obituary information, please view it at LeonardFuneralHome.com. Carol was born September 30th, 1939, in Dubuque, only child of Lois, excuse me, Louis F. and Stella R. Nochtman Welter. Carol is survived by her husband Patrick. Their four children, Susan of Iowa City, Steve of Des Moines, Janet of Seattle, Washington, and James of Boston, Massachusetts. Grandchildren, Jonathan, spouse Suzanne Pichoff, McFall, of Des Moines, and Marcus McFall, spouse Mark Michael McDonough, partner of Seattle, Washington, and one great-grandchild on the way. She was preceded in death by her parents, in-laws, John Lewis and Anne E. Nepper Walsh, daughter-in-law Renee Walsh, and sisters-in-law Genevieve Nemers and Jean Bartels. Laverne Messer, 79, of Wayland, died Friday, February 3rd at Parkview Manor in Wellman. Laverne is survived by his wife, Linda, three children, Ronnie Messer of Cedar Rapids, Jody Polkowski of Derby, Kansas, and Mark Messer of Williamsburg, three grandchildren, a great-granddaughter, Mother, Betty Messer, and three brothers, Jean Messer, Gary Messer, Olive Wayland, and Dan Messer of Washington. Funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, February eighth, at the Olson Powell Memorial Chapel. Burial will follow in the Cottonwood Cemetery near Wayland. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February seventh, at the Olson Powell Memorial Chapel in Mount Pleasant. The family will greet friends from 4 to 7 p.m., A Masonic service and Eastern Star service will begin at 7 p.m. Additional uh, notices are out of Cedar Rapids, Leola Thornbloom, 91, died Saturday, February 4th. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home, out of Cedar Cedar Rapids. Central City, Daniel Walderbach, 68, died Saturday, February 4th. That will be the Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. Harold Dean Hyber, 89, died Friday, February 3rd, Brosch Chapel and the Ava Center out of Solon. In Tipton, Helen Bernice, uncle Sauer, 94, formerly of Bennett, died Thursday, February 2nd, Fry Funeral Home out of Tipton. In Vinton, Helen Yunt, 86, died Thursday, February 2nd, Van Steen Funeral Home in Vinton. West Branch, Francis L. Abel, 93, died February 3rd, Henderson Barker Funeral Home, out of West Branch. And Robert Bob Peterson, 71, died Saturday, February 4th, be handled through the Henderson Barker Funeral Home in West Branch. And in loving memory, Lucas Allen Yenter, August 10th, 1985, to December 28th, 2022, My Son Shine, It Has Only Been a Month, you continue to live on in our hearts and memories as we think of you always. You will never be forgotten. We miss you. Janetta and Scott Crawford. Okay, we're going to go to the sports section. And we have an article here on college basketball. Ash thriving at the Citadel. Former Hawk is one of nation's top 3-point shooters with Bulldogs, Spy Jeff Johnson. He has no rigid schedule where every hour of every day is strictly accounted for and laid out ahead of time. He doesn't have to march, doesn't have to do push-ups or anything like that. Though Austin Ashe is playing college basketball at a military school, the military part doesn't apply to him. When the former Iowa Hawkeyes guard and Mount Vernon graduate became interested in the Citadel this past summer, that was one of the first things head coach Ed Conrad made sure he knew. As a graduate student, Ashe lives in an off-campus apartment in the beach town of Charleston, South Carolina, where it was 70 degrees and sunny Wednesday afternoon. Coach Conroy was like, you know what, you won't have to go to formation in the morning, you won't have to carry a rifle, you'll be living off campus, and you won't have to worry about that stuff, Ash said. But a lot of teammates do have to be in the barracks at a certain time, have to get up in the morning, so you have to be respectful of them with their stuff. But this truly has worked out great for me. I'm living a really good life this final year in Charleston and playing really good basketball. Ash has started every game for the Bulldogs, who are 9-14, and and is second on the team in scoring at 15.2 points. He is one of the top three-point shooters in the nation, ranking sixth in trays made per game. He has made seven threes in a game the other night against Chicago State, including going 5 of 15 in the first half. Most of his deep shots are really deep, as a recent chart floating around on Twitter from analytics company named Synergy Sports has him ranked second nationally with an average make distance of 25 feet 11 inches. Since day one, Conroy Conroy has encouraged Ash to load it up and let it go first and ask questions later. It has been kind of everything I was looking for in my last year, Ash said. I had the Big Ten experience, got to live out my dream of playing for the Hawkeyes, just never really got to be a significant player that got to play a lot of minutes. I had this last year. I was really just looking for a spot to be an impactful player to a program, do everything I can to affect winning. Even games that you lose, just be a part of it and feel like, oh, I really could have done this play. Really just being one of the guys taking big shots down the stretch, that's really everything I've had here at the Citadel this last year. Ash redshirted as a freshman after walking on at Iowa and played sparingly the next four seasons, though he was given a scholarship last season. Taking advantage of an extra year of eligibility due to the COVID pandemic, he went shopping for a school that would give him an opportunity to shine. He had a difficult time finding one, until attending the summer grad party in Iowa City of Jack Devlin, one of Iowa's team managers. Familial ties brought many members of the Conroy family to the same event, everyone except Ed who had just taken the head coaching job at the Citadel for the second time in his career. Conroy is a Davenport Assumption grad. Former Iowa player Mike Gattens introduced Ash to Conroy's brother Duffy, an assistant coach at Tulsa. They talked for a while, and Ed Conroy ended up contacting Ash the next day. Funny how that worked out, Ash said. A big issue was Ed Conroy didn't immediately have any scholarships to give. Ash and his mother flew to Charleston to check out campus, and a couple of weeks later, Conroy called and told him a scholarship just became open. This was in June. Had he not gone to the Citadel, Southern Illinois-Edwardsville was Ash's other option. Coach Conroy puts a lot of trust in me, and it's been great so far, Ash said. Hopefully we'll have a special end to our season. Ash said he always believed he had the ability to be a big contributor at a Division I program, that he just needed a chance. He mentioned how he felt he could go ahead to head some days in practice against guys like Joe Weisskamp and Jordan Bohannon, but not feel, and not feel, he was out of place. He still keeps in regular contact with his former Iowa teammates. He said he it's almost a daily thing with Connor McCaffrey. Those were guys I was competing against and sometimes getting the best of them in practice, he said, so I thought if I was at a smaller school, or if circumstances were different there at Iowa, I would be getting that chance to play. Coach mccaffrey mentioned that to me before but you never really believe it until you do it which is why this year has meant so much to me an article on women's college basketball clark hawkeyes mow down lions jeff linder wrote this story and it's um out of university park pennsylvania trap game forget that noise instead the iowa hawkeyes brought their a game and penn state could do nothing to slow them down Caitlin Clark assembled her third triple-double of the season, and the ninth of her career, and sixth-ranked Iowa smoked Penn State for the second time this season, 95-51, in a Big Ten women's basketball game Sunday afternoon at Bryce Jordan Center. The Hawkeyes, 19-4 overall, 11-1 in the Big Ten, won their eighth straight game and their biggest game yet at No. 4 Indiana on Thursday. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.